Well, good morning. Not Joe. I'm Scott. Scott Schifferling. Uh, my wife and I have uh, been going, uh, been members here for almost 10 years now. So we've been coming for a while and probably know most of you. Uh, would you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 34? Now, Joe is under the weather, so I'm sure you appreciate your prayers uh, this morning. Uh, go to, turn in again to Psalm 34. We're going, to be re- we're going to be going through the, through the entire psalm, ranging through the psalm, but this morning uh, we're going to read the first uh, 10 verses together and then pray and then we'll get into the exposition. And if I'd like to ask you just one more time, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 34, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who lack him, those who fear him, have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We ask this morning that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would care for us this day through your word and with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I like all kinds of music, and on Apple Music, one of the, one of the uh, playlists that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty strong playlist is ballads. And I like ballads, and, and I've liked ballads ever since I was a little kid listening to Marty Robbins sing El Paso and Big Iron on Your Hip, and a lot of songs that some of you are sitting back saying, I have no clue what he's talking about. But I, I've got a lot, of, a lot of ballads, and their ballads are, are songs that are a little bit slower, they tell a story, and they usually have some emotion packed. They, they tell the story in a certain way that makes you admire, makes you think, makes you get wistful. But it's a, it's a song that tells a story to instruct you, to teach us to learn. You know, one of the ballads that I, that I think about quite, quite often is the, the ballad that uh, Neil Young wrote after the Kent State uh, shooting in 1970. He, came, he went away into the woods with his guitar and he wrote, Ohio, and it's a very, very poignant song, that song, Ohio, many of you know it. Also remember in 1975, the first time I heard Edmund, the Edmund, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot, I was from Michigan and I never even knew that it had happened. And I was just mesmerized by the story and I've been up to Whitefish Point a number of times to see it and to, to look out at the water and just to think of the people that died, the 29 people that died there within a mile or so of the safety of harbor. 
But ballads are part of, uh, of our psyche, right? They tell us stories, they encourage, they instruct, and they, they help us to memorialize events that have happened in history. Think of the Star-Spangled Banner. Many of you know the story behind the Star-Spangled Banner, right? Francis Scott Key, a young lawyer, poet, is a prisoner on a British warship. He's sitting in the bay. He's watching Fort McHenry after 24 hours of bombardment. And he's watching at Fort McHenry. He's watching as, it, as the dawn comes up. And he watches some American soldiers with the, with the, during the bombardment raise the American flag. And he memorialized it. He wrote a song, memorialized it, that became a, a national treasure for us that is, I, I bet you, is sung every hour of the day somewhere in our land, right? In a, in a sporting event or in a classroom. But again, it's a song that memorializes something in history that it has lessons and it makes us think and it makes us consider. It makes us consider obviously with the Star Spangled Banner, what do most people at ball games, where do their hands go over their heart? Because as they're singing, it's a pledge of loyalty and it's a pledge of, of, um, of thankfulness for our country and the blessings of our country. Well, in this psalm, we have a ballad. We have a, we have a personal testimony. In the first 10 verses, David is going to tell us his reflections. He's going to talk about something that happened in his life. Now, the editor is very early in the text. It's not part of the inspired text, but very early in the collection of the Psalms, the editors put the story behind this Psalm. And there's three of these Psalms that, uh, where, where, where parts of David's life are, are shown by the editor. Psalm three says when he fled from his son Absalom. And then Psalm 56 and Psalm 34 both reference this event in David's life where he's at Gath in prison, and he's fearing for his life, and the Lord delivers him. And so this is a reflection and a teaching. Spurgeon said it's a hymn. The first 10 verses are a hymn. The last of the verses are a sermon. We might look at it and say this is David's reflection and the lessons that he wants people to gain from his reflection. Now the story, the historical setting for this psalm then, if we take this to be the editors to be true, and we, and we have no reason to disbelieve it, the, the historical context is 1 Samuel 21. Now let's go back and let's just put, let's ground ourselves in, in Davidic history. So David is a young man. He's the youngest son of Jesse. And at some point in his early life, probably 10 years old, 11 years old, somewhere very young, as a young lad, he is called in and the aged prophet of God, Samuel, anoints him king of Israel. He's got all of these big brothers, big strong brothers, and Samuel says the Lord doesn't look at the outside, the Lord looks at the heart, and the Lord, through, through Samuel, anoints David king of Israel. A few years later, David is taking some supplies to his brothers, and he walks into a, a, into a battle zone between the Philistines and Israel's army. And on the other side is this large giant, 
and he is yelling out curses at the Lord and at the people of Israel. And David's like, what's going on here? He said, are we going to let this uncircumcised giant, are we going to let him taunt the Lord God of Israel? And you know the story. What's David do? David says, hey, let me do it. Let me stand in the gap. He grabs the three stones, and he takes the stone in a sling, and he runs toward the giant, and he lets that, that rock go. And what happens? How many people went to Sunday school? What happens? Hits him in the head. Where's the giant go? Giant goes down. And then what's David do? David grabs Goliath's sword and he decapitates him. He kills him in battle. Okay. From that point, David then becomes special to Saul. He becomes he goes through training. He becomes a warrior. He becomes a captain and a leader of warriors. And he's, he becomes famous as a warrior and famous in his pursuit of Saul's kingdom's enlargement. He becomes this warrior king in training. And how does Saul feel about that? Saul doesn't like it. Saul becomes envious. Saul begins to think people might take David and enthrone him and might kill him and his family. He becomes envious and he tries to kill David and, and pushes David out. His own son-in-law, his own captain of warriors, his, the man who has been his breadwinner. And now David has to flee for his life. He has no food he has no friends, he has no mom and dad, he has no weaponry. He's all by himself, probably in his mid-twenties. He flees to the priests at Nob, they feed him, and they give him Goliath's sword. And then he goes out on his own. Well, somehow, he finds his way to Gath. Now, where have you heard the word Gath before? Where's Goliath from? Goliath is from Gath. And so here's David, the famous king of Israel, shows up in Gath with Goliath's sword. And he's immediately surrounded. He's an enemy, and he's captured, and he's imprisoned. And I imagine he's going through some abuse, and he's brought to the king of the Philistines at Gath, Achish. And at that point... David has gone from up here to down here. He's at the very lowest part, one of the lowest parts of his life. He's in prison, being abused, believing he's going to be killed. And that's where the, con that's where the context of the Lord's saving him. Now, we know what he does, right? He feigns mental illness. He begins to slur his words, he begins to slobber, he begins to write graffiti, he begins to do crazy stuff. And when they bring him in front of the king, the king looks at David and says, this isn't a king, this is a crazy person, this is a lunatic, this is somebody, I've got plenty of these in my kingdom, get him away from me. And so they release David and David leaves Gath and he's rescued. That's the context for this psalm. David later is going to write two psalms, Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. 
I kind of think Psalm 34 was a reflection a little bit later. 56, when you read it, it's a little bit more angst. There's a little bit more negative feeling where you can feel like he's still in the throes of understanding that how close to death he was. But in 34, you see a David who is reflecting back on that event and sees the hand of God in his life and is drawn to exuberant praise. And so the point that I'd like you to see this morning out of this psalm is that in all situations of life, we can count on God's faithful presence and care. In all situations of life, we can count on God's faithful presence and care. Think about it. David's message to you and to me is God rescued me. God was faithful in his care to me. You're in safe hands. You're in his hands. You're in safe hands. And that's the message of this psalm that we want to take today. Now, some, when they classify psalms, some will call, some look at psalms and they'll say, well, it's a, it's a psalm of praise, or it's a psalm of wisdom, or it's a messianic psalm, one that really foreshadows Christ, or it's a royal psalm, or a lament. One biblical scholar, a man named Brueggemann, when he looked at the Psalms, says, really, I only see three kinds of Psalms. There are Psalms of orientation. A psalm of orientation is where the psalmist is writing the song for the liturgy and for, for the worship of the people of God, and he's in a good place. His world lines up Everything is structured, everything is where it should be, life is good, and he's reflecting on the goodness of, of, God, of life, and he writes a psalm of orientation. His world is oriented well. But the second kind of psalm is a psalm of disorientation, and that's a psalm where the person writing the song, life is not perfect, things are going wrong, and in fact, in some situations, things are very wrong, and there is fear, and there is angst, and there is mental duress, and there is a, a, in a, an alienation from God where God seems far away and uninvolved, and he doesn't hear, and the psalmist will write a psalm of lament and of disorientation, reflecting the confusion and the disarray that's in their heart. But thank God there's a third. There's orientation, there's disorientation. And Brueggemann says there are psalms of reorientation. And the psalms of reorientation is where one who had his life oriented or had her life oriented, had everything in a row, they've encountered some cataclysmic event or a period of, of deadness or a period of loss or a period of distress where God seemed far away, they seemed far from the path of the righteous, and the blessings were things that they heard, but they just fluttered away because they didn't seem real. But at some point, they come back to the Lord, and they again enjoy the sweetness of the Lord. They reflect back on those events, and they write psalms of reorientation. So orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Then maybe that's a helpful way to look at it. Clearly, this is David in reorientation. This is David back with the faithful, reflecting on what has happened in his life. 
So this morning, I'd like you to look, really think on two things. First of all, let's look at the Lord. This Psalm is really about the Lord. David mentions the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is his name, mentions it at least 14 to 15 times. There's a real focus on the Lord. So let's, let's talk about what this Psalm teaches us about the Lord. And then secondly, we'll talk about how that impacts the people of God and how that impacts um, their thinking and their community life. So first of all, notice the focus on the Lord. David shares his view of God and of God's closeness. I want you to notice how near God is, how David senses the nearness. As he looks back, he, sense, he, he tells us about the nearness of God to him. Now remember, in the time of disorientation, he probably didn't feel the nearness of God. But looking back, he's saying God was near. Notice, notice the words that he uses. The first thing he says is that God hears or God heard me. Look at verse four. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. That word fears, just so you get an idea, all of the language in this psalm is, is intensive. Okay, it's poetry, it's intensive. So that word fears could be characterized as terrors or dreads or your worst nightmare, your worst fears. He's saying, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from my terror. Look at verse six. The poor man cried, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Look at verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And so David says the Lord is close by. He's nearby his people. He hears them. But he also sees them. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and the ears toward their cry. He hears them. He sees them. He is close this echoes the thought of Moses in Deuteronomy when Mo Moses says this. He's talking to the people and he says, For what nation is there, what great nation is there, that has a God so near to us as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And that's the idea here, that the Lord is close. He is near. Psalm 145.18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So the Lord hears, he sees, he's close, but he's also good. Notice verse eight, the beginning of verse eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, God is near his people. He hears them, he sees them, he's close, and he's good to them. Notice also the connection, verse 9. The people of God are called, you his saints, you his chosen ones, you his selected group of people, you are his people. It calls us 
his servants later in the passage. It also refers to us as the righteous. And I don't think by the term righteous you're thinking of those who are morally perfect, but what it's implying is, is these are the people who are God's own possession and reflect that, that they are his separate possession. So the Lord is near his people, he's close. Think of it like a, a diligent parent. Think about it like the mother of, uh, of, of small children, who when you visit with her or you're, or you're going somewhere with, with her, or even the husband as well, how they always know the sound of their kids, where their kids are at. They always know the sound of the cry. They're always attentive, no matter who they're talking with or what the situation is, they know where their children are and they know that they are safe or they're not standing there talking to you because they're diligent parents and they're attuned to the, to, the, 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 to the presence of their children. That's the idea here, that God is that diligent parent who sees, who hears, and who's close by and who's willing to do good. And that's the second thing, is that the Lord cares for his people his disposition towards his people is one of care. Notice the passages we've already talked about. Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Verse six, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him. In verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them. And so the Lord is close by, the Lord is near, the Lord cares, the Lord is good, he answers. And then look at the rescues. There's lots of words on, of, of rescue here, right? There's this idea, there's just, there's many, many uh, words that for, for rescue. Think of the, the, the words like redeem and deliver and save that are in the, in the passage. So the Lord also, he rescues. Look at the imagery of the captain of the angels in verse 17 that, or no, it's earlier than that. Um, it's where the captain of the angels uh, is camped around in verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around. It's not just the captain, but it's the captain with all of the multitudes. Think of Elisha on the mountain and Elisha's servant where he says, you know, there's not many here. And then God opens his eyes and he sees all of the multitudes of the heavenly messengers who are there. So God rescues. And again, look at verse 22, capping it all off. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. He also supplies. David not only needed rescue, David needed food. He needed supplies. And he is reveling here that God took care of that need too. Look at verse eight. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse nine and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. So the focus of the psalmist is, is 
This is the Lord whom we worship. This is the Lord who was there. This is the Lord whom we can count on, his faithfulness. It's a Lord who sees, a Lord who hears, a Lord who's close, a Lord who gives all of the good things to his people. This is the Lord that you can count on in your times of distress is the implication. Secondly, focus on his, on, the, on his people's blessings, on his people's response. The first thing is, you have, notice David. David says, I will. There's a resolve to do something. I will praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Think about that because during the situation, David probably was confused. David was probably doubting. David was in a bad place. And what he says is, based on this experience, based on my understanding of God that I've gained through this experience, based on my understanding of the Lord and who he is, I will praise. In all situations, I will praise. Regardless of what happens to me, I will praise. And think of like Habakkuk, the words of Habakkuk at the end of Habakkuk when he says, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though the fields do not give the crops, no matter what happens, I will praise the Lord. And that's kind of what David is saying is, I will praise the Lord. I will rest in his goodness. I will rest in his proximity. I will rest in his commitment to me. I will rest in that because he delivers his people. And notice the words that fuel his praise. He says, I will bless, I will praise, I will exalt, I will magnify, I will boast in, I will seek, I will fear, I will taste. There's a resolve that he will rely on God in all future situations, that he can count on the Lord in all situations. He refuses to be dominated by fear and by doubt in the future. Notice also he acknowledges God's preserving grace. One of the things that came close, came close to me in, during the study was the fact that David looks at his life and looks at a tight spot that he got out of and he doesn't conclude, boy, I got lucky. He doesn't conclude, boy, that guy was a dupe. He doesn't conclude, man, I'm really, really smart. I'm really, really good, that was a great strategy. He doesn't conclude, boy, I'm a really good actor. What's he conclude? He concludes that the Lord had his hand on that situation and that the Lord changed the king's heart. And the only difference between me and, and being dead is the Lord's intervention in this situation. He looks back at his life and he sees the handiwork of God in his life for good. And, and he resolves that that's what I'm gonna remember from now on, regardless of my situation. And remember, this is a 25, 26 year old man. He doesn't become king until he's 30 and he's king for 40 years. And we know that his kingship is filled with struggle. We know it's filled with problems. Just think of his, the, his home life with Absalom, right? And Tamar, and his, I mean, just think of all the messes in David's life that he's yet to go through. And yet as a young man, he's saying, I'm gonna remember 
Gath. And Gath is something that's gonna be indelibly emblazoned on my heart. And that's the confidence that I'm gonna have in my Lord. And I think the second implication here is not to lose heart. Not to lose heart. Now the words again are very intense. Fear, shame, humility, crying, troubles, crushed, afflictions, enemy, terrors. And in 56, he talks a lot about death. I mean, this is a pretty heavy time. This is David feeling pretty, pretty low. And he's got to be thinking, God, I thought I was your anointed. I thought I was doing everything right. I thought I was being loyal. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to for Israel. And yet, I'm alone, I'm hungry, I'm beaten, and I'm in gas. At what point do you say, there is no God? Or, that was a figment of my imagination, or this is just playing make-believe. All of those things which many of you have gone through situations where you say, is God really good? Is God really there? Is the stories they taught me in Sunday school, is it really real? And what David would say, David would say is don't give in, don't fall away, don't take another path, don't rely on other supports, don't fall away. You know, David, one of the reasons why this seems like a hymn of, a psalm of wisdom is because it talks about life with two paths. It talks about the, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And what David is saying is, stay on the path of the righteous because that's the way of blessing. No matter what seems to be going on in your life, because he says, listen, the afflictions of the righteous are many. The way on that road of righteousness is not perfect. It's not easy. It's not going to be springtime all of the time. There are going to be problems. There are going to be setbacks. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be obstacles. There's going to be times of where the Lord seems very, very distant. And he says, stay the course. Stay the course. Don't fall away. In verse 13, he's going to say, don't complain, bicker, fight, and voice your doubts to others. Right? And voice them in a way that creates dissension. Don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on other supports. Don't panic. Don't doubt. Don't despair. Stay loyal. Stay confident of future support and deliverance based upon the promises of God and based upon all of the examples of the promises of God being fulfilled in the life of yourself and in the life of your family and in the life of your community and in the life of the larger community of faith. Because that's your God. David's saying, God rescued me, you're in good hands. That's the message of the psalm. God rescued me, you're in good hands. Stay the course, stay loyal, stay on the path of the righteous. And then the third thing is, be quick to acknowledge God's grace in your life. There are a lot of times I can look back on my life when I was in a tight spot and I prayed and things were resolved. And you know what I did? I went on to the next thing without reflection. 
And I think I've probably done that many times in my life where God has been really good to me and I have just accepted it and moved on and not acknowledged him and then not acknowledge the wisdom of God in the overall working in my life. Very quick to go to Romans 8.28 when things are bad, but not real quick to go to Romans 8.28 after things resolve. And I don't, that may be something that you guys need to work on too. We need to be those who revel in the grace of God in our lives and in our stories. You know, there's a reason that God gives us all of the stories. Think about it. Why do we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why do we know about Daniel in the lion's den? Why do we know about Moses at the Red Sea? Why do we know those stories? Why do we know about Jericho and the walls of Jericho falling down? Why is that important to you? Why is it important to me? Why is it important to our kids? Why? You know why? Because that's the same Lord. That's your God. That's my God. That's, and you can count on him to be faithful in his love and in his care for his people. We as New Testament believers, do you think have more claims on the Lord than David did? Do you think that this, the nearness, that God is nearer to us than he was to David? Do you think that God's salvation for us is clearer than it was for David? Do you think his rescue is deeper than what it was for David? What do you think? I think the Bible tells us that all of the promises of God in the Old Testament are yes and amen in Christ. Everything, all of the promises are fulfilled in Christ. And us, we see that clearly. We see the rescue from sin and from death clearly. We understand that God, the very third person, the second person of the Trinity came and became man. And John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that the third member of the Trinity, the spirit is in us as a church and as individuals. We know that God has come close to us in this period of time in redemptive history, closer than he was in the time of David. So we can rely on this Psalm even more because we have Christ. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know in the terms of Brueggemann, if you're in orientation where things are going well, things are lining up, everything feels good. I don't know if you're in disorientation where there's confusion. And remember, sometimes disorientation can be during good times, right? Where everything's going well, but you're empty and you're far from the Lord and you're struggling. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know if the, if, if the weight of, of your problems and your troubles have ground you down in the ground and it's just as much as if you were in the, in the prison cell at Gath because you just don't even know if there's another breath for tomorrow. Or maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's, it could be a number of things, right? It's whatever's got you burdened. David is saying, I was there. And this, wor this word from the Lord would say, God is still near. God still hears your praises. He still hears your cries. 
He still sees, he still cares, he still provides for his people. He still has his captain of ministering spirits camped around you. It's the same Lord, it's the same care, it's the same promises intensified exponentially through the history of the church in Christ. That's your Lord. That's who you can count on. So stay on the way of the righteous. Stay on the path of the righteous and praise him because he is Lord. We have the right by being, as the virtue of being children of God to claim the promises of God, to believe in the promises of God, and to believe what the Bible says when it says, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin of death. In conclusion, I want to go back to that idea of ballads and of hymns. In one of our hymns, many of you probably know the story behind the, the song, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a pretty common, pretty, a lot of people know it. I just want to review it for us just to drive this point home. Horatio Spafford was a wealthy lawyer in, um, here in Chicago. And during the great fire of Chicago in 1871, he was ruined financially. Most, he lost most everything in the fire, including a young son. And at some point as he's trying to rebuild, he becomes associated with D.L. Moody and he becomes a supporter of D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody at this point is going to England or he's gone to England and he, wants, he and his family are on their way to England to support in the ministry there. And at the last minute, so it's him and his wife and his four daughters, they're getting, they're, they've got, they booked passage on this liner and something happens with the city of Chicago. He is in a fight with the council over some, over some um, permitting that's going on on the rebuilding. And so he gets held up. His wife and daughters go on this, uh, go on this transatlantic voyage. Well, you know what happens, right? The boat is rammed by another boat. It sinks completely, and his four daughters drown. His wife is saved, and she sends, a, she sends a telegram to her husband. That's a kind of a famous telegram with two words saying, saved, alone. Later, this man, right, this man on his way across the Atlantic pens these words, we believe, and reflects upon the loss of his family at the very spot where that that passenger liner goes down. And he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, the trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. So this morning, Psalm 34 is for us. And Psalm 34 tells us, praise always, don't fall away, share your graces in the community for the, for the uplifting of us all. But it calls us again that in our lowest times 
and in our highest times to be filled with a sense of the nearness of God and the involvement of God and the care of God in our lives. After all, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? This is God's word, let's pray. Father, this is your word. We are thankful that you give us encouragement. You give us encouragement from 3,000 years ago, from the life of David. And we know David was a real man, real flesh and blood, just like us, with real problems. And some problems were brought on from the outside. Some problems were part of his own doing. But nonetheless, he was your servant. He was your saint. And you cared for him. And you redeemed him and saved him and reoriented him. And we just thank you, Father, that you do that in our lives and that you're doing that in the lives of, our, of people even here today. We thank you for your word, we thank you for your encouragement, and we thank you for the work of your son and the work of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.